0: I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. and our text for this morning are verses 21 through 31. Paul is beginning to look at the benefit or the blessing of justification. And you will remember that justification was at the heart of the Reformation, Uh, so we are not uh, dealing here with minor matters as if there were such things as minor matters in the Bible. Uh, Yes, Jesus did say that there are weightier matters of the law, but uh, to hear what the Apostle Paul uh, is saying about justification. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. May God's blessing be upon the hearing and understanding, meditation upon, and obedience to his most holy word. Beloved, what are we to do? We are in terrible straits. Over the last few weeks, Paul has revealed to us in his letter to the Romans that God will judge each of us according to our obedience to his eternal standard of righteousness. And we have learned that we owe God both perfect obedience and we owe back debts for offending him, and we are incapable of, let alone disinterested in, obeying God. What are we to do? That's the bad news of sin with its guilt and corruption. Now we turn a corner and Paul leads us on to the beautiful new vistas of divine mercy and grace, forgiveness and restoration. So I want to look at these uh, verses under the following four headings. This morning, the righteousness of God has been manifested. There is no distinction. God is both just and justifier. And one is justified by faith. And that brings us to the righteousness of God has been manifested. Before we look into that, just note the title of the sermon, But Now. Note that that also occurred in the assurance of pardon. That expression, but now. You once were this, but now. You are that. You once were despised and rejected, but now you are a child of the living God. That's the function at the beginning of this text, of those words. But now, let us turn to that first point. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Paul has just got done telling us that no human being will be justified by works of the law and yet we can only ever be justified by our doing works of the law. That is the conundrum that we find ourselves in. How do we get ourselves out of this mess? Paul tells us that we are all going to be judged by how well we keep God's law. And at the same time, he is telling us that because of sin, none of us is capable or interested in obeying God's law. Even if we were hypothetically interested in obeying God's law, how could we do it? How could we fulfill God's exacting expectations? Obedience to God's law, the the way God wants that obedience to be performed to his exacting internal and external standards is absolutely impossible. By internal and external, I mean inward motivation and outward performance. Is there anyone since the fall of Adam and Eve... Capable of satisfying God's exacting standards? Paul answers that question with a shockingly surprising response. There is a way through this seemingly impossible impasse. How can a sinful human being find acceptance with a holy and righteous God? First, God has revealed that his righteousness has been satisfied and fulfilled. That's what he means by saying a righteousness from God has been manifested. It has been satisfied and fulfilled, but not by way of our keeping the law. Not by what we do. How is that possible? What is Paul talking about? While God's righteousness is not fulfilled by our obedience to the law, the law and the prophets, that is, the whole Old Testament, Paul tells us, bear witness to the fact and the way that God's law is satisfied and fulfilled. The scriptures reveal to us how God would save a people for himself if we have read the Bible With eyes to see. In other words, the basic contours of God, the gospel of God's saving righteousness, have been revealed in the pages of the Old Testament. Paul preached the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. We sometimes, I think, forget that because we are the beneficiaries of the New Testament. But when Paul was ministering, He did not have the New Testament. He was writing it. And so it is possible to preach the message of salvation from the Old Testament alone. How then does God provide a way through the impossible impasse that we have looked upon? If God finds sinners acceptable in his sight some other way than by perfect personal and perpetual obedience to his law, how does he do it? That's the expectation. Remember that God expects personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to all of the law, not just our favorite parts. To all of the law, not just the parts that we find easiest to Deal with all of the law. The apostle spells out the alternative or the antithesis to fulfilling God's law by both our perfect obedience and the paying back the debt we owe for offending a holy and righteous God. He, t- he points out, he shows it to us. The alternative to our perfect ob- obedience and paying off our debt is simply putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the alternative. We will have more to say about how Jesus is able to satisfy God's righteous demands, but for now simply recognize that Jesus has satisfied completely God's expectation for perfect personal and perpetual obedience To his law, for those who look to him for salvation, instead of relying on ourselves or on another other than God's Son. Beloved, please note what Jesus has done for the salvation of his own people. What he has done, what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what he has done just is the manifestation of God's righteousness, you want to know what does what, what God's righteousness look like? It looks like Jesus. Do you appreciate the antithetical nature of these two ways of fulfilling God's unchanging rule of righteousness, that is, God's law? It is one way or the other. We are saved by self-effort, or we are saved by the work of Christ. Either we satisfy God ourselves, or we rely upon the satisfaction offered by Jesus Christ. There is no third alternative. Those are the two options. Self-salvation, or salvation through Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our second point. There is no distinction. Looking at verses 22b through 25. Really, beloved, this is groundbreaking news for those who by grace desire to commune with God, which is the reason why we were created in the first place. God, in his gracious mercy, has gotten us past the impossible impasse. Paul is now at pains to highlight the fact that all human beings since the fall, with one notable exception, are in the same horrible mess. When it comes to standing before a holy God, beloved, we are all guilty of breaking God's law, and we are all corrupt by virtue of the loss of original righteousness with which Adam and Eve were first created. Our miserable and damnable condition is one that is shared equally by Jews and Gentiles. All of us are guilty and corrupt in Adam, and then we pile on our own individual sins and sinfulness. All of us are headed for hell apart from the grace of God. That's our natural state. Paul has just set out how it is that Jews and Gentiles equally stand before God. Jews and Gentiles are equally fallen and are saved by faith in Christ the same exact way. Now, Paul is not saying that we are all fallen and also all saved. That is a a form of the false teaching of universalism. Scripture is clear, unfortunately, that not all will be saved. The problem is not with how a good God could condemn guilty sinners. The problem is with how a holy God can accept sinful human beings. We ought not to be surprised that God sends sinners to hell. What ought to amaze us is that God extends gracious mercy to us. So what is Paul getting at when he says that Jews and Gentiles are equally guilty before God? and are equally saved by the grace of God in Christ. Simply this. There are not two ways of fulfilling God's righteous requirements. It is not as if Jews are saved by perfect obedience to Moses' law, and Gentiles are saved by faith in Christ. On the contrary, Jews and Gentiles are both saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Each of us must own our sin and come to Christ in faith and repentance and rest in what he has done for you and me. There are some who have suggested that, in fact, God does have two ways of salvation, uh, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile. So it's not uh, a crazy notion. Well, it is a crazy notion, but there are some that hold to it. This raises the question of what it is that Jesus has done. Paul notes here that Jesus was set forth as a propitiation by his blood. That means that Jesus' death on the cross placated God's holy wrath. Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death appeased the wrath of God. Yet at the same time, Christ's death was the manifestation of the love of the Father. The Son does not need to arm-twist the Father into forgiving the sins of his people. The Father and the Son, and I would add the Holy Spirit, are at one in our redemption. Jesus died on the cross to absorb God's wrath for the sins of the elect, but we ought not to pit the Father and the Son against each other as if that were possible. The whole work of Christ was planned in eternity past. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit entered into an agreement to save sinners. Beloved Jesus' death on the cross as the culmination of his life of perfect obedience satisfied God's righteous requirements for us. When Paul notes that God had passed over former sins, he is referring to the fact that until Jesus actually died, at a point in time in space, the sins of saints were not actually atoned for. However, the sins of the saints were atoned for in an anticipatory way. The efficacy of the cross works forwards and backwards, in other words. The Old Testament saints were saved in the same way that we're saved, by trust in Christ. Beloved, as you think about what Christ has done on the cross for us, the question should naturally arise in your mind, were my sins nailed with Christ to the cross? I pray and I trust that the answer is yes. It brings us to our third point, that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Ofttimes when we think about our justification, uh, if we do, I do, i know I trust that you do as well, when we do think about it, and more generally when we think about God's forgiveness of our sins, We think of God simply willing or determining to forgive us our sins. God simply decides to forgive and ignore his holy nature, which, of course, is the source of the law. Maybe God just gives a wink and a nod or a wave of the hand. That idea is actually erroneous and probably heretical. Paul reminds us in verses 26 and 27 that God has demonstrated that in his righteousness he is both just and the justifier of the ungodly, of those who believe on Jesus. God is holy, righteous, just, and good. This means, however, Uh, This means that however God works his plan of redemption, it cannot be merely an exercise in pure willpower. God's plan of redemption, his way of satisfying his own just requirements of the law, must be just and righteous and holy and good in itself. God is not satisfying some standard outside of himself, but as satisfying the standard that he himself is. Since it is God who is at one and the same time both just and the justifier of those who believe on Jesus, that would seem to exclude our boasting of any kind of achievement in our salvation. There were Jews in Paul's day who would often boast about their achievement in obeying God's law. They had this sense that it was perfectly possible to obey the law without any real struggle. Sometimes, as with the Pharisee in our Lord's parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, the Pharisee might even attribute his achievements to God's grace. But the Pharisee still boasted in himself. Perhaps that makes us a little uncomfortable. As we men say, the the blade is shaving a little too close to the skin. Our justification, beloved, your justification and mine is a gift of God's grace. It is a gift, it is not an achievement. And it is a gift that you can enjoy. It is a gift that you can appreciate, benefit from. However, do you find yourself bragging about your spiritual achievements? Do you do it out loud for others to hear, or do you keep it to yourself? Now remember, whether you do it out loud or you do it, keep it to yourself, God knows what you're thinking Anyway, and that brings us to our final point. Paul puts his point here in black and white for everyone to see. You are justified before a holy God by faith and not by works of the law. The works of the law are our attempts to obey Moses' law And further, any attempt we make to butter God up by our moral exertion of any kind. What some might refer to as brownie points. There are no such things when it comes to our relationship with God. Any moral exertion to win over God is a failure from the outset. Unless you obey God's law in every particular detail, perfectly, personally, and perpetually, your moral exertion will crash and burn. Of course, we all do gravitate by nature to self-justification. That's our normal modus operandi, or MO. But beloved God, who is rich in mercy... Rich in mercy, sent his Son for us when we least desired him, but most needed him. This is what is so good about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are unwilling and unable to perfectly obey God's unchanging rule of righteousness That's uh, the favorite expression of Jonathan Edwards for the law of God, the unchanging rule of righteousness. We are unable and unwilling to perfectly obey God's unchanging rule of righteousness and pay back our debts. However, God in Christ has overcome our inability and unwillingness to obey God. Paul reiterates the point that he has earlier made, that God is God over all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And the way God saves is by working faith in us, in the elect. We are saved the same way, Jew, Gentile, male, female, adult, child. Paul concludes our passage today by reminding us that God's means of justification do not destroy the law, but upholds it. While justification is by grace through faith for us, for you and me, it was justification by works for our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ fulfilled the covenant of works, that's the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden before the fall. He satisfies that covenant, so justification could be a covenant of grace for you and for me. The law of God, therefore, is fulfilled perfectly for us in Christ. Now, it's another sermon That Paul will get into actually, uh, that we are not to draw the wrong conclusion that therefore God doesn't care about our personal holiness. That is an implication that some have drawn. It would not be right. Do you trust in Jesus' perfect fulfillment of God's law? Or do you find yourself occasionally trying to fulfill God's law all by yourself? In conclusion, God has not waved away your sin, but has satisfied his internal justice by putting forward Jesus as the way his law would be perfectly fulfilled and our back debts paid in full. That's how Jesus saves us. We are justified by trusting in him because he has been justified in bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to meditate upon what we have heard this morning. We pray that uh, you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.